Hey, y'all, this is your Hayes Exchange co-host, Kendall Sunshine Hayes, and you are in for a treat with this podcast episode. Jonathan Quarles is the truth. As soon as Calvin and I wrapped this interview, I went out and read Jonathan's book, Making Dollars While Making Change. And let me tell you, it was a page turner. I finished it in like two days. Knowing the story of Jonathan, the man, the investor, the entrepreneur, entrepreneur and meeting in print Jonathan, the boy and the adolescent, it only allowed my respect for him to grow. No matter where you are in your professional journey, and even if you're in high school or middle school, this this book is worth picking up. I hope you read Making Dollars While Making Change. And trust me, nobody had to pay me to say that because like Jonathan, it's the truth. Exchange. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Hayes Exchange, the podcast where we highlight diverse faces and global spaces beyond the boundaries of tourism. It is my pleasure and it's an absolute honor to introduce Mr. Jonathan Quarles. He's an entrepreneur, he's an investor, he is a global expert. See, Jonathan, we know what Ebony Magazine has said about you. We know what Forbes has said about you. We know what Black Enterprise has said about you. But Jonathan Quarles, tell us about yourself. Who is Jonathan Quarles in one minute or less? Uh, wow, it's, it's truly uh, a plum pleasing pleasure as well as a privilege uh, to be with you all today. I am just a little country boy from Flint, Michigan. And I like to call myself in, in a funny way, a professional slasher. Uh, so I am a father slash serial entrepreneur slash angel investor slash uh, newly author of uh, Making Dollars While Making Change. Uh, so yeah, I'm a professional slasher. I think that's the best way of describing myself. So Jonathan, you are from a city that is now infamous around the world, Flint, Michigan, but you ended up going to our alma mater in Tallahassee, Florida. So I'd love to hear about how you even discovered FAMU and how your time at FAMU shaped your desire to go abroad. I was in the drum line. I was a percuss- I am a percussionist. And so it was a couple of things. It was the marching band and I wanted to play in the marching 100, which I did for one one year, actually, my freshman year. And then it was really the year before I got there in 2000, they were in 1999, they were a college of the year, business college of the year. And so I was like, wow. So I went on a black college tour in high school a couple of times. I visit FAMU. And I mean, I, if I'm going to be 100 percent honest, beyond the academic success that that I saw and read about and the wonderful uh, band, I saw that the ratio from women to men were like 13 to one. I was in awe. I was like, wow, these are some very beautiful women. And I get to do this in the sun and it's, you know, leaving the cold weather in, in Flint, Michigan. And really, I just honestly wanted to go as far as possible away from my parents because I wanted to get out of that comfort zone and really just understand, you know, how I can survive. I, I learn better when I'm like thrown out in, into the woods and have to figure out how to like get back home safely. When I went to FAMU, I was so amazed by the diversity, right? So, you know, you hear about historically black colleges and they say, well, it's no diversity. That's not, that's not the real world. And, you know, I lived in a scholarship house, the Knight Scholarship House over um, by Palmetto's. And so I was living with 17 other guys and these 17 other guys were from all over the world. I had people from Nigeria, Haiti, uh, Trinidad, uh, Honduras, Louisiana, California, Chicago. I mean, and even from England, it was a, a four feet tall, uh, we call it a dentist. I, I, that wasn't his actual name, but a dentist was from England. And 
we had that kind of diversity. We all share this, the different shades of, uh, you know, black and brown hue. For me, my, my roommate was from Nigeria. And when I say his first experience of America was actually in college. So I had to teach him how to drive. We would all have to share cooking and things like that. So you would learn through people's culture and their food and things like that. That was part of the reason why my first uh, international study abroad program was through South Africa because my roommate actually encouraged me. Um, I said, so if I had an opportunity, where could I go? So there was a couple of other places, but he said, this is your first time in Africa, go to South Africa first. You know, while you're there, spend the weekends kind of going throughout the, the continent. And so one of the best experiences I've ever had, my parents can afford to send us anywhere. So that was my first trip. And from there, I realized that I had so much growing up to do. I saw communities and villages where when at least what I would see on TV was not really representation of that. I, at that point, I realized that I want to be able to help expose and educate other people that was like me that come from humble beginnings to know that you don't have to be rich to travel. And then I met the ambassador of, of South Africa at the time. And so at that point, I said, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. I want to be a U.S. ambassador. That was my first experience and one of the best and greatest experiences uh, in my travel. So we talk about FAMU being the Mecca for black students, but then you traveled to South Africa and you saw so many successful black people. What was that like when you saw people that looked like your uncle and your aunt? It was amazing. I mean, I felt like I was home, not just in South Africa, because I've been to other places in Africa, but it's something about going back home where you just step on the soil and it just is something that I just, you can feel spiritually. And just looking at people that like you said, that looks like my aunt, look like my cousin, and I'm like, are we related? And to see such the diversity, particular in South Africa, and how beautiful the country was, it was, I don't even know how to describe it. I do know I want to make sure my daughters are able to. And so I do that um, at least twice a year. I take my, my daughters on international experiences. And it's this idea that I'm teaching them that it's important to travel to learn, not to learn to travel. You know, we were looking at your interview with Travis Smiley, and he was sharing one of his recent experiences in going overseas and learning from one of his mentors who said that whenever you travel, the most important thing is to eat their food and listen to their music and to learn their culture. Uh, what was that like for you? What were some of the things that you ate? What were some of the things that you experienced culturally during that first experience overseas? Yeah. So uh, so it's interesting because a lot of the food that I was trying, I, I had an opportunity to learn it because of my roommates. Right. My roommates was cooking that. And here in Detroit, we have uh, several Eastern African Ethiopian restaurants here. It's amazing. And it's healthy food. Now, I don't think that I had any fried food when I was there. And, you know, at that time, I wasn't really checking for my health. But I was eating all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, at, at fam, you know, I would be at uh, Olean's like breakfast, lunch, dinner to go to Africa and to really see actually herbs and plants being, I mean, it's the way that they were seasoned. It was just like amazing. I, I never felt better. That was true soul food, in my opinion. I was supposed to be doing a, a birthright trip to Africa last year, but then the pandemic hit. But I'm looking forward to bringing more people back to the continent. I'm so surprised how many you know, descendants of Africa, which technically everybody's a descendant of Africa. How many people have never been to motherland? Like that's one of my goals is to expose and to educate and to, to be able to help people get there um, before I leave this earth. And speaking of helping other people get overseas, one question that we have is, do you think that there is some type of formula for becoming a global citizen? While you were at FAMU, you were super involved uh, we've mentioned that you were a member of the Beta New Chapter of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. You're a member of student government. 
What are some of the other things that people can do to prepare themselves? Were, were there other things that you were involved in that kind of piqued your interest in being abroad? I know you had the very diverse living environment. What, but what other things can students do to kind of prepare themselves? I would say, and this is not a shameless plug, but it is to check out Making Dollars While Making Change, uh, the book. So the book in the back, I actually list, I think it's about 20 or 30 different fellowships where I've been to over 50 countries, but I think majority of the places that I've been to, I never paid a dime to go. They were either through fellowship programs, through foundations, through different kind of student exchange programs through the State Department. And I would tell people, again, you don't have to be a, uh, you don't have to be a business person or a politician. There's so many different opportunities. And I would say take advantage of those because, like I said, there's fellowship. This is free trips where you go and you learn as culture exchange, educational exchange. But in the book, in the back of the book, I list all of those, um, the ones that I've been a part of and the ones that I know of. So, again, you can travel free and traveling is not as expensive as people think. And I think it's all about priorities, too. Um, for me, I, if you look at where I spend my money, it's either at food and traveling. I don't really spend a lot of money on designer clothes or and it's, I'm not knocking anyone's whatever you like. But for me, I spend I'm willing to spend the money that I would have been spending on buying a Louis bag or, you know, a nice car on actually traveling. Because for me, I, I'm really curious and I love having perspectives and different point of views. And the way that you do that is by traveling. So you have been blessed to overcome one of the biggest obstacles for people of color. Like we often talk about uh, the three F's, which are obstacles that that people face when they're deciding to go overseas. And that's family. You know, their mama is terrified and is telling them, if you go, you'll never come back. You know, you get kidnapped. You know, there's all that kind of thing. And that pours into fear, which is another one of the obstacles. But the one thing that you have touched upon is probably the one we hear about the most, and that's funding. So just highlight for us a couple of the opportunities and the fellowships you had after South Africa to dip your toe back in the international waters. So, yeah. So uh, one was the German Marshall Fund, um, where I went to Romania and uh, oh, Croatia. And so I spent, uh, I think it was like a month and a half there with a group group of other um, fellows. There's one, this uh, American Swiss Foundation. We went to Switzerland um, and it was an actual an exchange of, I think it was like 10 Americans and then 10 Swiss. And so we worked together and it was like a think tank. Uh, American Council for Young Political Leaders. I was involved in that one and that was pretty cool. We went to uh, Germany, I think Germany and uh, Torino, Italy, I believe that's what it was. And a lot of these are like state state department funded. So Wysely, uh Young Southeast Asian, I can't remember, I'm, I may be messing up the acronym, but uh, YLI. So I've been a part of all of those programs, either as a speaker, a mentor, or just an exchange student or fellow. And so again, these are all trips that were paid by ultimately through the state department, but through other programs that are funded through the state department. So did you do these trips mostly as a young professional after school? Because I meet a lot of young professionals who still want to travel and have no idea how to get connected with some of these State Department organizations. Yeah, I did it all after after college. So between the time of maybe 20, 23 until leaving leading up to now. So, yeah, it's a lot of opportunities. And again, there's even fellowships and programs for people that are in um, that actually are in between professions. Right. And there was some that I wanted to apply for, but you would have had to live there for, I think, a year or two. And at the time I had a young family and I couldn't just uproot the family for a year to just to come back. 
But there's a, a lot of options. If you don't have families, there's a lot more options for you where you can kind of move and be a little bit more f- flexible. Of those countries that you visited after school, so not in South Africa, but after, where was the place that you felt best as a person of color? I'm assuming there weren't a lot of black people in your group. But if there were, you know, school me, because I generally that's not the demographic. But how do sure. you feel both within the group and in the country as a person of color? Where were your best experiences and where were some that, you know, left something to be desired? I really enjoy. And I think this was one of those moments when I went to Ghana for the first time. That was an experience. It was very emotional for me. I think I cried most of the time there, just learning and seeing what happened. And just the love that was there. Amazing. Um, I love Singapore. So I I told my kids that before they graduate, and I have an eight-year-old, six-year-old, and a three-year-old, all girls. And I told them that we're going to live at least in two different countries before they graduate from high school. And so Singapore is one of the places that I want to spend at least a year or a year and a half. I just love that hub where you can just jump on a plane and, you know, an hour or so can be in Taipei, Taiwan, or you can go to Hong Kong or you know, just all of these different places in the Southeast Asian area. Um, so it'll either it'll be Ghana, I believe right now, either Ghana or South Africa and then Singapore. So those are my my top places. I, I would say I, I did a fellowship in St. Kitts and the love that I got there. I really felt like I was one of them, actually. Brother, you're somebody that has really taken your business beyond borders. I mean, when you go to another country, how do you identify what is it that they need that you can fill? How do you identify what skill set you have that they might be able to benefit from? I'm usually talking and working with startup companies. Those are more so far and advanced startup companies. So they're at a point where they're ready to scale. They have the capacity and the wherewithal to be able to do work in America because it's a price to pay uh, to do business um, across borders. And so for those companies that are ready and have the financial wherewithal to do so, usually I get connected with them through, I'm I'm also, I'm on a speakers bureau, the U.S. speakers bureau. I either get connected there or lately I've been getting connected through Global Ties, which I'm on the board for Global Ties U.S. as well as uh, Global Ties, the local Detroit board. And so whenever we have guests in town in, in, in America, which we are still, con- well, we haven't been doing it. We've been doing it virtually lately, but I'm usually showing them different avenues of ways of accessing funding as an investor, as well as um, just connecting them to how our ecosystem works here and best practices. And so a lot of times they would then afterwards say, hey, you know, all of these entrepreneurs and these businesses, can you connect me to them? And so I started doing that just for free um, because I just love like being able to help companies grow. And it got to a point where people were like, well, what do we need to do to retain you? Because we can't travel back and forth to the United States. But since you're here and you're working all throughout the United States with your consulting business, can we retain you? So that's how it started. And that was about four years ago. And from that point, because I love traveling, I, I really focus more on my business internationally than I do domestically, because once a quarter, I have to do a business review. So I have seven clients in five different countries. I get to go to Montenegro, Tokyo, Israel, Torino, Italy. I'm missing a couple. So I get to go to those places and to do my business review. And then while I'm there, you know, I get to enjoy the country. So, But also, can you talk a little bit about just cross-cultural communication skills? Obviously, you're working in different continents, different people, different personalities who all want different things. These are skills that you absolutely have. But are those skills 
things that people can learn? Or can you talk a little bit about those cross-cultural communication skills that you have? There's a book and I can't remember the name of it. I think it's Kiss, Bow, and Shake Hands, but it's like my Bible. And so the book basically gives you a profile of pretty much every country and it tells you their social norms. It tells you the pro- it gives you protocol. It gives you background to know, like for some people, you should shake hands, some, the way you present your business card or the way that you should eat or the way that you can't hug. So you, I, I do my research on the front end, but then on the back end, I usually connect with the embassies in those areas. So through that department, I usually kind of get a briefing and, and a lot of times I would actually initiate it. So I would call and say, hey, I'm going to be here for several you know, days or a couple of weeks, they'll then kind of give me a briefing. This is what you should be doing. This is what you should be doing. These are the places you should visit. And I get a framework from them. And then I kind of like explore a little bit because I, I don't fear a lot of things. Um, and, and that comes from growing up in Flint where I saw a lot. I mean, I saw a lot of very um, scary things. And so, you know, I, I realized that life is short. Memories are everything. And so I, it's this idea, and I used to say this, that life is not so much of the breaths that we take, but of the moments that take our breath away. It's so important for me to make sure I create the collective of memories so that I can have these moments because that's the only thing that lasts. You know, we can pass away or, or, you know, you have someone to pass away. The memories that you have, as long as you have that, that person still remains alive. And so I want to create collective memories for my kids, for my family. And I don't want to live a scary life because life is so short and I just want to make the most out of it. And so I'm careful. But at the same time, I, uh, I have a lot of street smarts. So that kind of helps out, too. Well, you've convicted me because Lord knows I'd be scared of so many things. Luckily, being married to Calvin, I've had to overcome a lot of fears. And to be honest, living overseas and working overseas, just by very nature of the type of work that I've done, I've had to face a lot of fears and therefore overcome them. But one of the things that you're saying is so poignant to me because I feel as though a lot of people of color who are leaders like you see a lot of needs in their own communities. We all know that even Flint and the Detroit the greater Detroit area has a a huge need for investment for infrastructure. And so how do you reconcile and how does a young student reconcile the desire to give back to their community locally with this also ability and capacity to make a global impact? And how do those sometimes, you know, overlap and intersect? At a very young age, my dad always used to tell me too much is given, much is expected. Honestly, how I got into entrepreneurship was primarily because I realized that was the only way that I can help my family get out of poverty. I couldn't depend on the government. I couldn't depend on a nine to five to actually do that because I didn't know anybody growing up in Flint who actually had a nine to five that actually were able to elevate their a generation and to be able to create generational legacy. With that being said, my dad always made sure it was very clear to us that you don't forget where you come from. And so it's so important that we lift as we climb. So you have opportunities. This is, this is what my dad always used to say. I used to hate when he said this. Never mistake your presence for power because the mere fact that we're able to do the work that we're doing is the gift. And so we need to create more receipts because the greatest gift is within the receipts and not the actual gift. Because the reality is we can package up beautiful gifts but not have anything in it with, with receipt. Even if, even if it's something that's a bad experience, you can still return it. And you, if, when you know about returning gifts, you still get a... a uh, a receipt after that. So you always have proof of purchase. And so it's so important that as we live and as we grow, the only way that in particular in our generation and beyond, in order for us to compete and to thrive, and more importantly, just to like learn and, and to live, like there's a lot of people that are alive, but not living, but to be able to be in the land of the living, we got to be able to step outside of our comfort zone. We got to be able to go to the next level. And the way we do that is exploring areas that are uncomfortable to us, 
and it gives us a point of view and a perspective so that we're not ignorant. And a lot of the ignorance comes from the fact that you just don't know. Everybody's ignorant of something. And so it behooves us to be able to take the opportunities where we possibly can and to be able to transfer that into our communities because we live in a global society. And as a matter of fact, we're talking about planets now that may have potentially have life. It's almost like Kodak film in the sense that sometimes all we need is just a little bit of exposure. And what you all are doing, you're not just talking about it, but you're doing it. And to see people like you, I can be whatever I can see. And so we need more people like yourself and and like others that are traveling the world, whether it's for business or pleasure, but to travel to learn opposed to learn to travel. All right, great. I'm so glad you, you touched on learning because you have like been all over the world and you weren't like a language person. Like you weren't like, okay, I'm going to learn Chinese and go to China. I will study Hebrew and engage with Israel. Like you're like, you know what? I can talk to anybody. What do you say to yourself? How do you, what are some of your mantras? What? How do you give yourself confidence when you're engaging with new people? But two, what are some of the, the things you have to kind of like overcome with language barriers or, or, or most of the people operating in English in a way that you can do business easily. So again, I, I'm very curious. And so what I do also, I, I should have said this, but I, I know enough to be deadly. Now I'm not fluent. I, mean, I am fluent in Spanish, um, but I'm not fluent in, I mean, Japanese, I can, I can do basic things, but I say this in a joking way, but it's actually for real. It's something about human behavior. Um, I laugh and I say that I speak kind of two and a half languages. I speak English, I speak Spanish, and I speak body language. And body language, I say it in a funny way, but if you really read people's body language, that tells you a lot, right? And the universal language is music. And my, you know, you, that's universal. And so if you're able to connect with people with music, if you're able to really pay attention to human behavior and understand you know, the basic things of what makes people happy. Because at the end of the day, we're all human beings. We speak different languages. We come from different places. But to be a person like I, I seek to to learn and to understand. So I humble myself. And so I, I try things that I normally wouldn't try when I'm in America. There's food that I've tried. And I'm not a big raw food eater. But in, in, in the Asian community, I lived with a family in, uh, in to- Toyota City. And every day we had to eat raw food. And that was the hardest thing ever. I did it. I tried my best to not like get sick, but it would have been very disrespectful for them because that's a huge part of their culture. That's one of those examples where, you know, you have to really, I think if you can understand human behavior or you take the time to really just humble yourself, then I think that you have a better chance of actually adapting and adopting to the culture in which you are, you know, you're you're participating. Jonathan, you've done a lot. You have done things locally in your community. You've done things internationally. What's something that people who know you wouldn't expect? Like, what's something about you a lot of people don't know? Uh, just a you know a little known tidbit about Jonathan JQ Quarles. So yeah, so I love fashion, and I actually make most of my clothes. I have, I have my own shoe line, and so I mean I don't make money off of the clothes that I make. I actually do cut and sew. Um, I learned how to do cut and sew. Um, I have a, a several different designs that I plan on coming out with, but I have apparel business. I have, um, I have a, like I said, I have a shoe collection and I just really love that. I've always loved fashion. I was that kid that would like read magazines about, you know, Vogue, all of the fashion magazines. And like, I, I could style women. Um, and I, I did a little bit of that in college with like the girls I was dating. I love that. I mean, I, I I love it. I don't really talk about it because it's not like a business. But for me, what I do, I try to do a lot with the samurai samurai warriors used to do, 
where in order for them to balance their minds so that they're able to think strategically in war, uh, when they were in war season, they were in war season. That was it. But then off season, they would do art. Like they, so it was like challenging left and right brain, right? And so what a, t- a lot of times we either challenge our left brain only or our right brain. So every year, like this year, I'm learning how to like plant. So I have, I bought plants. I'm learning how to like improve my, my green thumb, but I, I'm really big on balance, right? And so from a metaphysical standpoint, balance is everything to me. And so uh, I do a lot of right brain stuff with business, but left brain, like I said, one, one year I learned how to cut and sew. I done culinary school. I did massage therapy school. I learned how to DJ. Um, like turntable DJ. Um, so those are the things that I do to keep my brain balanced. And I think it just makes me happy. That was completely unexpected, but you know, I'm always looking for a stylist. So I'm just going to keep that in the back of my head. Future <laughs> reference. But I, I'd love to know who are some of the designers you follow? Like what are, who, who inspires you in that space, in the fashion space? So I, I love Kanye West. And I say I love Kanye West because not only do I love how much of a rebel he is, I love that he does things that makes that he feels right and feels good. He's a he's a time traveler. So he's like 20, 30 years ahead of us. And we won't catch up until another 10 or 15 years. And by that time, he's on to the next thing. So I love designers that are like astro travelers. Because, again, I don't I hate living in the present. And so right now I'm thinking about like, what is 20 years from now? That's why for me, legacy is big. So, you know, 20 years, my daughters are going to be in a different place. So I want to make sure that I have created the environment and I've instilled within not so I don't buy them things. Like I give, I put things within them so that they can create their own. Um, and so that they can learn how to actually create on their own. So my oldest daughter, uh, who's eight, she's actually, uh, she works for me. She's on the payroll. She's she's so much further along as it relates to investing than I was when I was in college, you know. And so she has an IRA. She's now working on uh, this stockpile, which is um, it's like a, a app you can use for like beginners. And so it gives you half the share, so she can like buy with her money that she gets um, through her her. She's working for daddy right now, and eventually I'm like, if you want the company, that's yours, but you got to earn it. I'm in this place where legacy building is is so important. You know, Jonathan, I have to I have to say something about that because. I feel like I benefited and was the beneficiary of good fathering. Um, I had a dad who had a full-time job, but also was a visionary, Uh, you know, started a company with my mom, also modeled. Uh, And so they would do like Juneteenth back in the day and put on these shows. And my dad would kind of like do the modeling part. My mom would, she would preside over the, over the show and, Watching that at a young age really benefited me. And even most recently when Calvin was in Iraq, I was home with my dad and he he broke his knee. And uh, I don't even know if it's called broke. I don't know. It's like he injured it. He was on crutches. And I remember they needed to get some work done. And my dad gave me like management over these like construction projects that were happening at, at, at the house. And I have to tell you, interacting with people in Spanish, because many of the folks who were working were either Spanish speakers or maybe they weren't, but interacting with people who were mostly male on behalf of my father, I didn't think about it at the time, but it was such an honor for my dad to trust me with those kind of responsibilities. And it really shaped me because Calvin and I recently brought bought a property on FAMU's campus. It's like a small apartment building and it's right in the heart of campus. 
And I had to start engaging with contractors and with, you know, people who are tradesmen or, or handymen. And because of what I did with my dad just a few months ago, I had this increased confidence in myself to do it. Um, you are an investor, not only in a financial sense, but you are investing all that you know, all the experiences you've had in your daughters. How are, like, what's your strategy? What's your approach? But more so, what are your dreams and your hopes for your daughters? You know, what is it that you hope they take away from all that you're doing? What What is your your greatest aspiration for them? Sure. So the, the, my greatest aspiration for my daughters is to, to understand that they live in a world of others and not themselves. Right. So my, my daughters are in a different place than I was when I was their age. And so they literally can be whatever they want to be. And I didn't have that option. I had to survive. Some people would call it misfortune. I call it fortune because that taught me grit. It taught me hustle. It taught me how to like focus because I don't have anyone I can depend on. I want my daughters to realize that, again, too much is given, much is expected. It's not enough that you're able to live in a better house. You're able to have best education um, possible. But you now have a greater responsibility to make sure that that is for particular black and brown people that you you pay that forward and that everything that you do has that that idea of leading with purpose and, and not profit. Um, oftentimes we forget. Right. We forget where we come from. And I don't I never want my daughters to be that. I want them to have compassion for all people um, and to to treat people the way they want to be treated, even when they don't treat you that way. So those are the values. And again, the way that I teach is not just by saying, but it's by doing. So I want my daughters to see it. That's why it's important for my daughters to travel with me so they can actually see they go to work with me. So they see that daddy actually it's not glamorous. A lot of times being an entrepreneur, it's it's hard, you know, particularly during a pandemic where a lot there's all these new normals. And my business was all about interaction with people. So now I got to figure out how to pivot to do this stuff virtually. It was a challenge. And I want them to see that. I don't want them just to see the good things. I don't want them to see, I want them to see the, the whole totality of what it makes and what it is and the kind of sacrifices that I make for them and for myself, but what kind of responsibility they have now. And I started a foundation um, in, my, in the name of my father's name. And with that foundation, I'm teaching my daughters the importance of giving, right? Not with your time, your resources, um, not just you know writing a check and just say, I feel good about myself, but what do you need to roll your sleeves up? And so that's the things that I'm teaching them, I'm telling them, and I'm starting to empowering them because, I mean, I can't wait till they're teenagers, right, to do that. So that's kind of what I hope that they get gather. Jonathan, you've given us so much to chew on here. Um, one of the things that we want to revisit is just this idea of the barriers to actually go abroad. And we talked a bit about, you know, finance being a major barrier for a lot of African-Americans. But I think it's two-sided. One, people fear that they can't raise the funds to go overseas. But secondly, for mid-career professionals, they don't see that there's actually markets where you can actually improve your net worth or it could be a profitable career. And, you know, for most people, they want a job that's uh, sustainable. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, positioning what you do in your current skill set to meet a, meet a global market? For me, when I travel, I travel for fun, but I'm always, because I'm an entrepreneur, I always have my entrepreneur hat on, but I'll see something and I'll say, wow, like, okay, that's, they're selling this for that here. I know that can be a demand or that's a trend. I do a lot of my, I do a lot of my study and my travel. So what's hot in other areas that hadn't hit to America? I'm like, okay, well, how do I get involved in that? Because 
I think this could really, you know, do well in America. But no, it's it, to understand trends based upon travel and to see it in real time. Because again, when you, I look at business as a human experience. So if humans like it, you just got to figure out how to like cater it and, and customize it to to the market that you're serving. But it's everything we do is for for people. And that's why to me, it's so important to really, and when I, when I wrote the book, Making Dollars or Making Change, this wasn't a book about capitalism or it wasn't about socialism, um, but it's really the intersection between business and social impact. And so one, what is the purpose? Uh, leading with your why, all the businesses that I'm involved in is like, does, does this business or this idea I have have a unique business proposition or a unique purpose that aligns to something that I'm passionate or I can relate to through my lived experiences? And if I can't, I usually don't do the business because I want to be authentic and true. And I don't want to just be a person that's just doing it because it can make money. And then as we conclude, you've talked a bit about global ties already, but I think a lot of people have this fear of going abroad as well because they don't think that where they stand, there's enough opportunities that are global in nature. Can you talk a little bit about how you've created your own global community in Detroit and what were some of the organizations like Global Ties, if you could talk a little bit about Global Ties and how important that organization has been for your own growth and development. Oh, it's been great. So it's we call it citizen diplomacy. And I used to call it uh, urban diplomacy. And so this was my idea of wanting to connect urban communities to travel to international exposure. And so when we have people to come in, to, one of the things that Global Ties is great at is bringing in other uh, other countries from all walks, whether it's education, uh, business, philanthropy, and they come and they basically learn the culture here and then they learn best practices that's happening in those specific uh, industries. So the exchange program is second to none for global ties. But to me, that's you're able to open yourself up to a world where you don't even have to go to that country. Um, the last trip we had was for uh, Palestinians that were here and they were here studying with the university, but then they also had internships. So they interned for for me and a few other people, and they got a chance to see kind of our work culture and things like that. But then you're able to travel to Palestine without even going there. And I think that's what's so significant about Global Ties is bringing that to the community. And I say bringing it to the hood because I want to be able to expose uh, more black and brown people to all of the options in the world. <laughs>